Welcome to San Diego Sessions. We're here today with flutist Ollie Hoffman. Listening to San Diego Sessions, San Diego's jazz podcast, featuring local artists, new releases, and more. Here are your hosts, Ian Tordella and Ed Kornhauser. Welcome to San Diego Sessions. We're here today with flutist Holly Hoffman, and I'm your host, Ian Tordella. And I'm your other host, Ed Kornhauser. Good morning, Holly. Morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming down. And of course, before we get started, we have our segment, This Versus That, aka Inane Banter. This is when I take uh, two jazz musicians and my co-host, Ed Kornhauser, will have to pick one and only one. There can only be one. And Holly, feel free to jump in. Okay, first up, New Age. New Uh-oh. Age, first time I've Uh-oh. said that on the podcast. Oh boy, that's, this scares me already. Oh <laughs> New boy. Age saxophonist Paul Winter versus saxophonist Paul Jeffrey, who was in the early 70s Monk's last tenor player and also uh, a mentor to Terrence Blanchard. I'm gonna go. With, I'm gonna go with Paul Jeffries on that one. I have a distinct um, distrust of anything with the phrase "new age" attached to it. Uh, okay. Uh, just right. Up, what? Wait. Paul. Paul Winter was. Paul what, Winter. He was. Yeah. Who's the other? There's another uh, Winter guy who plays piano. Who's known for new age stuff? Any relation? Um, What's his name? I can't think of his name. He's real. Jonathan Winter. Is it Jonathan Winter? No, Jonathan Winter is a. No. He's a comedian and, and uh, impressionist. <laughs> okay. Sorry, never mind. We're going to go on. We have to move never on mind. to a more flute-centric question. Right. Uh, uh, this one, pianist and also vocalist Les McCann mm. versus uh, a very interesting player who worked in Quincy Jones' dream band and a lot as a sideman, but only has, I think, one album in his own name. That's guitarist and flutist Les Span. So Les McCann or Les Span. That's a that's a pretty good I gotta say, that's a pretty good one. That's a that's a that's a deep cut and it's very well uh rhymed. That's what you pay me for. Yeah, exactly. I pay you. Uh I mean Les McCann I listened to a lot of Les McCann when I was coming up and and uh I've always dug his approach and have occasionally tried to ape it in my own playing. I've heard Les Span, but not not as much. Um are you are you familiar with, with him more? With Les McCann. Oh yeah, I'm def- yeah definitely. There's some Quincy Jones Dream Band clips on YouTube from the early '60s in Europe, and it's only four saxes. Uh, Sahib Shabab is playing Barry, mm. and of course the saxes are in line, and the guitar player sits really close to the saxes. So at one point they all are on their doubles, and it's also Phil Woods, and then Les Span is playing flute. Oh, that's and just killing it. He's just shredding. So they're all on flutes, and then he's the fifth. 
flute. Oh wow, that's got to be a great sound. So really, um, yeah. yeah. For for per- <laughs> that, as cool as that sounds, and I will definitely be checking that out for personal taste. I'm gonna go Les McCann. Okay, and the last one, uh, we got to go to the West Coast here. Uh, famous West Coast drummer and uh, former owner of the Manhole, Shelly Mann, oh. versus a trumpet player who played with uh, Tom Waits and Jimmy Jufri, and he played with Shelly Mann and Art Pepper, Jack Sheldon, Jack Sheldon, or Shelly Mann. Oh. <laughs> this is the best I can do. Wait, well, that's a, okay. Uh, so wait, Shelly Mann or Jack Sheldon? Correct. Okay, sorry, I was trying to get your. Um, God, I'm a huge Tom Waits fan, but uh, I think I'm gonna go with uh, with Shelly Mann. I've got a bunch of bunch of records with him on it as a either a sideman or a leader, and uh, I'm gonna go West Coast all the way on this one. I guess they're both West Coast, but I'm still gonna go Shelly Mann. <laughs> all right, Shelly Mann for the win. Okay, that was This Versus That, but we're going to kick it off with some music from our guest, Holly Hoffman. This is M-Line from her record, Turn Signal.
We are back with our very special guest, Holly Hoffman. Uh, we just heard Holly on flute, and on that track it was Terrell Stafford on trumpet, Rob Thorson on the bass, Richard Sellers on drums, and Mike Wofford on piano. Yeah, that was that was terrific. You were talking earlier on the break how you originally envisioned that tune uh, a hair slower. Uh, yeah, just a hair. Just a hair. Uh, I, I wrote it to be a medium swinger, and um, when Mike and I were getting the album pulled together, um, we... Mike said, I'm hearing this fast. And when he counted it off in the studio, I thought, oh, no. <laughs> but, you know, it, it worked fast. Yeah. It and was love- just, you never want to play after Terrell Stafford. Well, I, I, I think you, you hold your own quite, you know, exceedingly well. <laughs> And I, lo- and I love the timbre of the flute and the and the trumpet. I don't hear that very often. No, that whole album is flute and trumpet, and it's also alto, flute, and flugel. Oh, those are those would be nice. So very those are very complimentary. Yes. Yeah. So uh, we introduced you at the top as being a flutist, but you're also evident by this a composer and uh, and an impresaria as well. You um, in the San Diego area, you've been a huge supporter of jazz and promoting it and putting on concert series for for many years at many different venues. Um, How did you first start producing and promoting these various jazz series? Well, I started at the Horton Grand, the, you know, that old uh, Victorian hotel downtown Mm. when nothing was downtown uh, in 1992. Um, Mike was playing piano there, just solo piano and sometimes bass. And my first album came out in 1990, and um, the one that I started touring with. And when I was gone, I started bringing special guests from L.A. Mm. And then the word got around because, you know, they got to stay in the hotel and all their food was comped. And, you know, it was a very good situation for artists. And it just took on a life of its own. So that was about seven and a half years. And uh, everybody played there. Diana Krall played there, uh, you know. Hank Jones, uh, just about everybody you can think of. Anyway, uh, then I moved to the Bristol Court uh, when there was an owner change. At oh, the that's, a, that's also another hotel downtown, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah, mm-hmm. Did that for a couple of years, and then I moved to the San Diego Museum of Art, a first Wednesday of the month series for eight years. Wow. And these were all national series, although many San Diego sidemen played with some of these people. Yeah. And did did some of the local San Diego musicians occasionally be take on a like a leadership role yeah, as well? Sure. Yeah. yeah, I did that also. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I moved to the North Park Theater, and th- then it was um, they turned that into a, sta- a standing only rock and roll club. <laughs> yeah, I've I've stood so. <laughs> there and sort of rocked and rolled a couple times myself, but yeah, it's, it was not the best yeah. uh, venue for jazz anymore. Yeah, but the um, I I I really think that. Musicians that know how to do this should do it because so many people do jazz promotion for the wrong reason. They think it'll be hip for their restaurant or they think it'll be, you know, something something to bring in people. And they're not really invested in the music. So mm. things don't always go well. And I think it takes a musician that understands what musicians need to have to do it and... So since I kind of started doing it unexpectedly and figured it out, made a lot of mistakes in those early years, but I've kind of figured it out, 
that's why I keep doing it. But you're a musician yourself, so you know what the artists yeah. need or would want. So that Right, and I, I also like to play gigs where I get to showcase the music I want to play. Mm-hmm. So the rooms were always curated so that people could play their compositions, things they're working on, you know, not have, uh, I, did, I never had a say in anything. I never insisted on saying, well, you have to play standards or right, whatever. Right. You gave artists free reign, which is yes. which is tremendously cool. Yes. I I think it's important to let people play what means something to them. <laughs> and then, then the audience will reap the benefits of that, too, when yeah. you're watching somebody really do what they what they want and, and really want to present. Right. Otherwise, you're just playing a hotel gig in the back, you know, basically. And some writers don't realize the audience really gets it when you're invested in what you're playing. When you're feeling it and you love it and you want to play it, they get that, even if they don't understand the genre. Hmm. And um, have you always promoted events here in San Diego or have you done so elsewhere as well? I've done a couple of jazz parties, the Newport Beach Jazz Party early on. Hmm. Um I'd still do a jazz party in on the Newport coast in Oregon. We're in our fifteenth year. Oh wow! I'm just the music director there, but uh, you know it's it's a labor of love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I did one for a while in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Oh wow! At so- the State Theater. So yeah, if, you know it's um, it's hard to do it long distance. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And, and do, you, do you make those connections through your, your, your touring that you do? Or? Yeah, people knew about, the, a lot of people knew about the, the Horton Grand and the, um, the art museum. So when they wanted to present, they asked me to consult, and, oh. and it ended up being, you know, something I could do long distance. And uh, currently, uh, this uh, you you present a jazz series at San Diego's Henry Hotel over in the Hotel Circle. Mm-hmm. Um, how long? Full is that? disclaimer. Yeah, Ed and I have both played at this series quite frequently. Yeah, I might have done it two weeks ago. <laughs> Conflict of interest. Yeah, you exactly. might have done it two weeks ago. I might have. Po- I think that week. was you. I think that was me. <laughs> and I and I and I've been a side man many a time as well. And I've done the leadership thing twice. Um, when did you start? Uh, when did you start presenting that series? About a couple of years, right? Um, it's going to be four years, March first. Really? Yeah, we started it in March. And, wow! Uh, Sorry that 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 actually surprised me. I felt like well, it's, it's wow. Yeah, four and years uh, wow. And Kirk Shear, the the GM of the Handlery, has been a longtime friend. I used to work uh, at the Barefoot Bar in uh, Paradise Point Hotel. Um, we weren't barefoot, but right. anyway, uh, it uh, he he became the GM there, and he said, you know, bring some music in for one night in this lobby area and and small bar that we have holds about seventy five people, mm-hmm. and and so I started just bringing in jazz groups, and it again it kind of took on a life of its own. Quite now, <laughs> a, seems like there's a line out the door, and and you've got artists coming down from LA, yeah, and uh, it's become really quite an institution here. And the handlery, it has a you. You got a nice piano in there, yeah. And the room sort of has a good sound. Like there's something that people engineers like about the Village Vanguard because it's an odd shaped room. It doesn't get all boomy. It has a nice sound, but right. I think the handlery kind of has a good vibe like that. As long as they're not shaking up too many drinks at the bar, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, or making mojitos, <laughs> yeah, oh, where yeah, they they're... pound the 
the mint into the glass nice. at exactly the wrong time. I'm glad they don't make pina coladas there with a blender. <laughs> the, yeah. No blenders. Yeah, thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, earlier this year, you you presented um, um, four nights where your husband, Mike Wofford, played all of January. And that was, I mean, one of the most fun things I've seen at the Handlery. I think I only got to go to the first and the last of that series. Um, yeah, was... He had a really good time. Um, neither of us play at home that much because when we come home from the road, we tend to hibernate. But uh, And he has had a long time solo piano gig at the university club, 16 years, I think it is now, for when he's home. But um, he just picked a bunch of players that he has fun playing with and did four Fridays and had a great time. And and it it was just jamming, basically. He mm. didn't bring in a bunch of charts, and so that was that was fun. The only thing I didn't like is it was it was so packed I couldn't get behind the piano. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I I stood I stood and watched and admired from quite a far ways because it was utterly slammed. Yeah. I could not get there early enough to get a to get a good seat, so I I I made do with my uh my 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 opera glasses basically. <laughs> um, from a presenter's standpoint, how has the audience in San Diego changed over the years since you've you've started this? Well, I think we keep adding on to our audience. Um, it's always had a, an older contingent to it because I think people come to jazz later in their life a lot of times. Mm. They get tired of rock and roll and they get tired of, uh, you know, the music they've grown up with and they they come to jazz maybe a little later. But also we've added, you know, through, uh, well, you and I have um, been involved with the Homeless Choir, you know, downtown. Yes. Steph Johnson's uh, Voices of Our City Choir. Yeah. Um, we've done a lot of outreach. Gilbert Castellanos has done a lot of outreach in the younger generation. So now it's interesting because the Handlery audience is, um, you know, some older people and some really young ones because it's an all-ages venue. So they get to come in and take notes for their classes and, you know. Yeah. Hang. You always see the concert report people. Yeah. You can spot yeah. them a mile yeah. away. Just like, they bring oh, their notebook. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Every now and then you get surprised. I remember yeah. I did one hand every thing and someone, a, a younger-ish, I mean someone about my age or maybe a bit younger came up and went and I was like, you're going to ask me a bunch of questions. And they were like, no, they just came. And I was a bit surprised. Yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. took me off guard. Yeah. Um, so do you see how do you see the next generation like staying engaged and, and interested in jazz? Not just as musicians, but as like listeners and appreciators as well. I think the people that get to participate in school music programs and you know, a lot of them have gone away, but there are still quite a number. I mean, a very small percentage of those band members and the people that have played in the schools are gonna be able to become professional musicians. But <clears throat> they become listeners because those were good years for them in high school and college. And they remember that those days fondly and they, they become, you know, people that support live music events because it means something to them from their background. Well, I think we have so many new young people coming into jazz in San Diego. I mean, it's almost becoming like a sport. <laughs> so because there's lots of kids playing in, in Gilbert Castellanos Young Lions program. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there are great programs at a few of the high schools like Mission Bay and Canyon Crest Academy. And mm -hmm. I think just all the younger siblings see like this is something fun 
that we can do. It becomes more of a, a team thing and not like you have to stay at home and practice. I, I think I just get I just get so tickled by this fact. Like it's it's all these parents who are, you know, traditionally like, oh yeah, we we got soccer practice on Tuesday, karate practice on Wednesday, yeah, and then but no, we're gonna take our kids. <clears throat> to a bar on a school night for a jam session and stay out real late. I'm like, those wow, that is awesome. That yeah. is so cool. Like at Panama, but other venues too. Yeah. Like you see the kids yeah. come out and sometimes you see the parents like you see this group yeah. of younger players like all hanging out and their parents are in the back. I'm like, jazz parents. And sometimes wow. by the dozens. Yes. You know? <laughs> what's the what's the collective noun for a group of young lions? I don't know. Yeah. Well also um I have a lot of young female jazz musicians that are still in high school that are coming to they come for lessons from time to time but they're also coming to talk about some issues that they have being the only girl in the jazz band or uh you know not a lot of male support sometimes in in high school and they have you know i i remember when i first started and i did my first jazz festival and they always thought i was the singer um <laughs> yeah. and i'd say no i play flute and then i kind of go guys would say, is flute a jazz instrument, really? And, you know, it was um, it was a tough go there for a while early on in my career, but these women are still uh, experiencing some of that. Oh, girls don't play as well as guys, or, you know, uh, flute isn't a jazz instrument, or uh, we don't really want you on the bus for the, I've heard this too, when we go out as a jazz ensemble, high school jazz ensemble, we don't want girls on the bus. You know, it's just silly stuff, but... It's hard for me to believe that that's still going on, but if I can mentor them to to deal with that, I feel good about it. Yeah, it's. Um, I've experienced all of it. I was going to say, yeah. I mean, uh, jazz is still to this day sort of a male dominated thing, and it's rife with sexism left and right. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's a shame. I've been to. It's funny. I always say this, but I I remember going to Japan and just it was such a shock to me seeing so many female musicians on every instrument and in, not that japan necessarily it doesn't have its own problems with gender inequality but like for some reason in the in the jazz scene it doesn't seem to yeah, be a thing yeah that's interesting doesn't seem to be that yeah. in just in that world like it definitely doesn't seem to be a thing and i'm like why is that true not or rather sorry why is that uh not true here and and and, and it's it's not just about musicians but it's it's about our culture in general and the way mm -hmm. we we view women and um well, the other thing, too, is that uh, jazz is respected much more in Japan than it is here True. and Western Europe and and in many places. Mm. Um, so when we play there, they're really – there are young women in those in the audience listening to every note. Right. And they value it differently than they do here. You know uh, – I remember Ray Brown telling me that when he started, he and Hank Jones were living at the at the Y in New York, going out every night when they were young to hear everybody, and they they used to watch the 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 most famous musicians ever, Art Tatum and and Oscar Peterson and everybody had to use the busboy entrance, yeah. and they couldn't come out and talk with the with the audience. Hmm. So we've made a lot of progress, you know, but over the years, but not as much as you might think. In Japan, they're so honored to have the musicians there. It's a whole different thing, right? But even like, the, there's definitely a strong culture of of Japanese young jazz musicians yeah. too. And there's so many, there are so many women, and they 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 they're incredible and they're supported and they they 
they're treated as as, as yeah, equals. And, I think they're supported a lot. Yeah, and it's it's just it's just it is it's it's less true here. As a mentor to many female musicians, what what advice do you give them? Like having gone through just about every everything in the book <laughs> yourself. Um. Well, I've I've always told all my students that you have to be as good or better than males to command respect. And um, that's unfortunately, you know, um, a lot of the, uh, you know, jazz educators networks and things, they still have women mentoring programs and competitions. And I, you know, I am against that. I want the women and the men to be involved in the competitions. And if the women don't win, then they have to practice harder. But uh, I, I like for them to experience how it's going to be on the road. I mean, I, I, you know, in a in your career. So um, I tell them to, um, you know, to get really good and also know their tunes, know their keys. A lot of times they're going to sessions, and you know, the the guys will say, "Well, what's the first chord change?" Well, you know, they've got to really. You know, they've got to really know their stuff, and they've got to know how to play sessions effectively and go in with their music prepared and try to, you know, try to fit in. But it, you definitely, I remember a great old trumpet player, Clara Bryant, said to me one time, um, you know, to be a woman in this business, you've got to have the skin of a hippopotamus. Yeah. The It's got to roll off your back. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because you, you get a lot of flack. It doesn't matter how good you are; you're still gonna get yeah. Get, get you play really good for a chick, you know yeah. that those comments. Yeah. <laughs> and again, the singer thing—it's just it. Yeah, it's like oh, I I love female vocalists absolutely, but it's just like that. That's the one, the the silly, stupid, and quite frankly disgusting stereotype that oh yeah that that's where we can put yeah. women in yeah. jazz, and which is just ridiculous. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's something that really bugs me. Do you see, do you see a sea change like coming? I mean, I see a lot of young female musicians here in San Diego. Who are... I think they're doing a lot better. Yeah. Um, I played a gig recently with an all uh, high school uh, jazz ensemble um, at a church here in San Diego that has a little mini jazz festival, and um, they we rehearsed once and they brought it and they were. You know, these are all juniors and seniors in high school and one in first year of college. And they they take it seriously. They learned all the music. They were amazingly great. So the fact that we can play together is a really good thing because they should be playing with women who are doing this for their career. And if you do any gig where people did their homework and actually learned all the music, then you're in great shape. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And if, anytime. And, Males and, included. <laughs> and I especially think as, as, you know, if you're a young female musician and you start to get inspired by jazz, one of the best things for you is to be able to be exposed to, oh, look, there, there's, a, there's a woman and she's maybe playing my instrument or whatever, and <laughs> look at her, I, I could be like her. And if you don't get that kind of representation... Then it's 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 hard to it's it, it's a that's an immediate roadblock right there. We don't even think about it, but it's like true representation in any art form is incredibly important. Well, when I do clinics, uh, when I'm on the road at schools, one of the first things a lot of the women ask me, the girls, uh, young girls, ask me is, "Can I really do this for a living? Can I really can I really get good and get to play with my ensemble?" And I, you know, I say, "Yeah, you can." Totally can. Yeah. 
you just got to put it, you know, ta- talent is, you know, what's the phrase like talent is a practice in disguise, you know, to a certain extent, you just got to, you just got to be willing to put in the, in the hours yep. and work and it doesn't matter who you are. You just got to, I mean, talent just, I think is, I've always thought talent sort of like a handicap, not, not in the sense of like a golf thing, like, oh yeah, if you've got a fair amount of talent early, it makes it a lot easier yeah, in the long run sure. but doesn't mean that if you don't have as much you're not all you don't have to be born be born a wunderkin to wunderkin to just be able to well and there practice. are plenty of those now too yeah well believe yeah. me god it's just like they're putting something in the water the kids yeah. are like what you know they <laughs> see these little kids playing i'm like i at 14 i was playing video games what are you yeah. doing yeah and at, fif- so at 15 joey alexander's playing as a leader uh, with string orchestra at Dizzy's in New York. <laughs> it's absolutely insane. Like it's 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 mm-hmm. not fair. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, so not to shift gears too abruptly, but uh, your upcoming project, you're going to be working on a uh, a Jobim and Antonio Carlos Jobim project with with strings, I believe. Right. We've been touring it for several years. Oh, we wow. performed it here in San Diego at Qualcomm Hall. <clears throat> Excuse me, and um, it it can be done with as few as twelve strings, but we've done it with full orchestra strings, which can be you know twenty or thirty, and um, we've done it in Australia, and New Zealand, and and uh, Salt Lake City and New Jersey. It's been a wonderful thing to perform, and I always thought I could never do it live because it's so hard to record with that many people live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but our record label, Capri, out of Denver, um, is is willing to try. He's also willing to do uh, to record a string quartet and then stack the, the strings, you know, to make it a full orchestra. Oh, so there's four parts, but it's still yes. a, it's a... Right. Yeah, it's a massive ensemble. Yeah, I'd love mm. to do it live, but... Um, Joe Beams, you know, a lot of them are Mike Wofford charts, and he writes the strings right into the rhythms, the the uh, Brazilian rhythms, and a lot of string players have a lot of trouble with that. So it's yeah. been an interesting <laughs> project to get them to practice those Brazilian rhythms properly, and off, often they look at those compositions. You know, the orchestras look at those compositions as um, pops. So, you know, they. They're uh-huh. not used to having to really woodshed the the parts for Brazilian rhythms. It's a little bit outside of their comfort zone, which can be fun. Yeah, yeah. So we're deciding which way to go on that, mm. on the full orchestra, which we would do here in San Diego, because the Jacobs family is very interested in having it recorded with the San Diego Symphony strings. Oh, wow. And what, so... You probably have to be in Studio West or somewhere to get the right size room. If if you did, yeah, if all you, the strings yeah, at once, if you could, yeah, yeah, and we could do it with with twelve. We've done it before. It's 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 great with twelve, but it's really lush and beautiful with full uh, string orchestra. Have there been any particular strings plus jazz projects that have inspired you in this regard, like? Well, Charlie Parker was strings, strings yeah. yeah. Um, it's just that the flute is particularly friendly with uh, Jobim writing. And uh, I always heard the alto flute, I play a lot of alto flute mm-hmm. on this, I always thought the alto flute best portrayed uh, Jobim's wonderful talent in 
writing compositions. So that's kind of why we created it. Plus, when you go to other countries, a lot of times they want um, semi-classical projects for orchestras and different things. So it could fit in well in a classical festival as well as well right. as a jazz one. It's it, it's a it's a it's a real crossover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Crossover. Yeah. Yeah, and the audiences generally audiences like that love jazz, also love classical, and vice versa. Generally speaking, that's a good crossover audience. Yeah, that's quite true, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for, for when that is going to be out, hopefully soon. Yeah. And um, you were mentioning alto flute. Why don't we get into some of that right now? Well, uh, alto flute, um, I, have, I did a record called um, Low Life, <laughs> which um, didn't mean that I was a low life. It meant that it was the low oh, right. tones of the alto flute. Yes. And I had a wonderful rhythm section of uh, Mike Wofford, uh, John Clayton, Jeff Hamilton, and Anthony Wilson. That is a dream team, for that sure. That is a dream team. So I wrote a tune for this particular um, ensemble and the recording uh, called Lumiere de la Vie. Thank you. 
I'm vocalist Whitney Shea, and you're listening to San Diego Sessions. Here's your jazz forecast for the first few weeks of 2019. As always, here are the regular happenings. Mondays, guitarist Louis Valenzuela hosts his regular jam session at Rosie O'Grady's in Normal Heights from 9 to midnight. No cover, but it's 21 and up. Every Tuesday, the Havana Jam is downtown at Prohibition from 8 p.m. to midnight. On Wednesdays, Gilbert Castellanos hosts his long-standing Wednesday night jam session at Panama 66 in the middle of Balboa Park. Music from 8.30 to 11.30 p.m. Come down early to hear the Young Lions play from 6 to 8 p.m., featuring up-and-coming musicians from around the city. On Fridays, our guest, flutist Holly Hoffman, presents Jazz Happy Hour at the Handlery Hotel in Hotel Circle from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. No cover and free parking. On January 4th, bassist Mackenzie Layton plays with Leonard Patton on vocals and Ed Kornhauser on piano. The next week, January 11th, you can catch flutist Lori Bell with L.A. pianist Josh Nelson and San Diego bassist Rob Thorson. Also Fridays, Gilbert Castellanos presents Jazz at the Westgate, an intimate series in the Plaza Bar at the Westgate Hotel from 8 to 11 p.m. And on Saturdays, you can also see vocalist and guitarist Steph Johnson at the Westgate from 8 to 11 p.m. Now here are your highlights for the coming weeks. Friday, January 4th, guitarist Peter Sprague and vocalist Lisa Hightower play up at Kai's in Cardiff at 7.30 p.m., along with Trip Sprague on saxophone and flute. Later that evening, young saxophonist Julian Roll performs at Dizzy's with Sean Hickey on bass, Johnny Steele on drums, and more. Music kicks off at 8 p.m. Cover is 15 or 10 for students. On Sunday the 6th, the Whitney Shea Quartet plays on the patio of the Bernardo Winery in Rancho Bernardo, playing high-energy jazz and blues from 2 to 5 p.m. No cover, all ages, and dancers are welcome. In a special afternoon performance, flutist Lori Bell explores her Brooklyn Dreaming recording at Dizzy's at 3 p.m. with Joshua White on piano, Rob Thorson on bass, and Duncan Moore on the drums. Cover is $15 or $10 for students. Later that night, vocalist Leonard Patton and pianist Ed Kornhauser play at the Turf Supper Club in Golden Hill from 8 to 11 p.m. No cover, but you must be 21. On Tuesday the 8th, catch bassist Sean Hickey for his CD release of Sunflower Sutra at Dizzy's with Matt DiBiase on vibraphone, Louis Valenzuela on guitar, and Julian Cantelm on drums. Cover is $15 or $10 for students. Later that evening, saxophonist Charlie Arbaleas hosts a jazz party at 7 Grand starting at 10 p.m. On Friday the 11th, your pianist Mikon Zlakovich and trombonist Dave Scott play at Vins in Escondido at 6 p.m. And Saturday, January 12th, pianist and your podcast host Ed Kornhauser plays a special birthday concert at Panama 66 featuring Rob Dove on sax, Harley Magzino on bass, and Kevin Higuchi on drums. All original music from the birthday boy from 7 to 9 p.m. Later that evening, saxophonist Christopher Holiday recreates his Telepathy album at Dizzy's with an all-star band, Gilbert Castellanos on trumpet, Joshua White on piano, Rob Thorson on bass, and Tyler Crutell on drums. Music starts at 8, 
cover is $25 at the door or $20 in advance. On Sunday the 30th, guitarist and former podcast guest Robin Henkel and his horn band play an afternoon show at Lestat's at 4.30 p.m. It's also Sassy Sunday at the Turf Supper Club with vocalist Lorraine Castellanos from 8 to 11 p.m. You're listening to San Diego Sessions. You're listening to San Diego Sessions. Subscribe on iTunes or listen online at DirtyBoulevardRecording.com. And we are back on San Diego Sessions, coming to you from Dirty Boulevard Recording Company in an undisclosed location right outside of downtown San Diego. Uh, Again, we're here with our guest, flutist Holly Hoffman, and we heard a beautiful alto flute track called Lumiere de la Vie from her record Low Life. And we were just listening to Cleveburg, a little play on words uh, on Cleveland, and that featured um, Bill Cunliffe on the organ and Frank Potenza on guitar. For all our listeners out there, if you want to see some pictures or see some little videos from the show, please follow us on Instagram. It's San Diego Sessions Podcast. And as always, check us out on iTunes. And if you like us, you know, give us a quick little little like, a little subscribe, maybe some stars, whatever that whole system is. Just, you know. But if you don't, that's fine. That's fine. Just stay away from that. And uh, as all, also, as I, I feel the need to... Maybe mentioned a couple times because I just found out uh, we're also on Spotify. Spotify jumped in on the podcast game. So if you subscribe there, I mean, sorry, if you subscribe to Spotify, you can go check us out on there. We've got all the episodes listed with little show notes and everything. Great news. Yeah, exactly. More ways to get it. Hmm. Yeah. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us sdsessionspodcast at gmail.com. And now it's time for our much anticipated segment. This is... The San Diego 7, with our guest Holly Hoffman and my co-host Edward Theodore Kornhauser. Yes. Uh, This is the San Diego 7. These are seven questions we'd like you to answer from the top of your head and the bottom of your heart. I'll try. All right. Number one, what was your first instrument? Flute. Flute? Mm. I read something on your bio about... uh, A flutophone. A flutophone, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I had to Google because I didn't know what that was. Yeah, it's played like a recorder. Okay. <laughs> but it was plastic, and I got that at five, and I and then my f- I got my real flute at six and a half. Oh wow! So yeah, that was that was a quick gateway. Yep. A quick <clears throat> gateway flute. My dad was a jazz guitarist, so we played every night of my life. Wow, he played <laughs> he played standards and that kind of yeah. thing. Or, oh yeah. wow! Uh, speaking of your early jazz career, number two. What was the first jazz performance you attended? I'm going to guess maybe your dad might have taken you. Art Tatum. You're kidding. Mm-mm. Wow. Wow. How, how, how old were you? Little. Yeah. I don't remember exactly, but really little. He played in Cleveland, and we lived about 40 minutes outside of Cleveland and oh, uh, wow. in the country. And I remember it was a big deal because yeah. it was a school night, and I got to go. Jeez, I think I think you're the new winner on this question. Yeah, that that's that's the coolest one. I mean, uh, well, previously we had Trip Sprague who said the first concert he remembered was like Jimmy seeing Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix because his parents took him down to Sports Arena to see them. But Art wow. Tatum, I'll give it to Art Tatum. Art Tatum wins <laughs> bar none. Wow, I'm the most amazing. Well, to this day, I mean, we we have every art recording in our house and. Uh, Probably the most played in in the course of a year. Wow, 
And God, was he performing solo or with a group? Or with a group. Okay. <clears throat> there was an old club. I'm not going to be able to think about think of that club in Cleveland now. It was on Euclid Avenue. That's just gone. Yeah, that, but the memory of the performance is not. Yeah, no. That's the important part. Uh-huh. That's incredible. Wow. I wrote that down. I'm like, all right, that's the best answer. Uh, you win. Uh, number three, uh, as you alluded to earlier, uh, you played and recorded with a legendary uh, bassist, Ray Brown. Uh, what was one lesson or piece of advice he imparted to you, either directly or you know just indirectly from playing with him, you know, musical or otherwise? He always told everybody he worked with to play what they play and what they're strongest at instead of trying to encompass all the different styles of jazz on one CD. So he he said he said since I can play the blues and stomp on it that was his word that that's what I should be playing instead of trying to play, you know, straight eighth and and Brazilian and I should do what I do and he said hmm. you never become a star in the business unless people can recognize you in 16 bars. Oh, that's him in a heartbeat. You know it's Ray Brown within like, oh yeah, it's obvious. It's like, that's Ray. And if you don't have your own thing, then you're not going to become, I guess star isn't the right word, but you know, successful in your own career. Yeah. You got to have a thang, as he called it. Hmm. Well, he, he could, wow. I had that's a lot amazing. of, I mean, I could go on for an hour about what he taught me on the bus <laughs> in Europe and stuff. You know, it's like... uh I used to just sit up there and hear every possible story and lesson and oh, amazing time. I never got to see him, unfortunately. Um, I never got to see him or to, to just associate him with Oscar. I never got to see Oscar either. I saw Ed Thickpin once, but I never got to see... Uh, well, and speaking see... of supporting women, uh, the tour of Europe where the promoter told him to bring tenor and trumpet and vocals... He brought flute, violin, Regina Carter, oh. and uh, oh. Kevin Mahogany on vocals. And the promoter w- was not happy. <laughs> oh, because he, he was. He, he didn't was, want. He wanted a female he, singer. He wanted the stereotype, yeah. stereotypical sort yeah. of. Yeah. And he wanted tenor and trumpet. And, and uh, Ray said, Well, this is what I brought and this is what we're doing. Good for Ray. Wow. So talk about promoting women. That And that was early on. You know, that was. 2000, early 2000s. It's always good to hear good things about your heroes, you know? Oh, so often you hear the opposite when yes. you really get to know them. Yes. Number four, and this is a bit silly, this is one of those would-you-rather type things. Would you rather, and this is something I literally thought of, I think of this for myself, so that's why I'm just asking you. Uh, would you rather only wear one color every day or have to wear seven different colors every day? This is I. I actually have seven colors on now, so I, my. Oh, by far seven different. Yeah, I love color. Oh, me too. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Just to be weird, I wore all black yesterday or Monday. I'm just, eh, it's bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, number five. This is uh this versus that kind of like the beginning with mm-hmm. um, Ian and I. This versus that. Alto saxophonist and member of the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, Sherman Irby. Versus drummer and famed session musician and sideman, Sherman Ferguson. Sherman Ferguson, because he was a good friend. He was on my first two albums, and he could light up an entire studio experience. Uh, He seems... I saw him uh, perform once uh, in 2004. 
five, I was on the wings of a thing and uh, wings of the theater. And I was right above the drums, and I watched him the whole time. He was amazing, Ew. and he did have. It's funny you say light up because I I remember him just being electrifying both to look at and listen to both. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Really engaging artist. Yeah. And a really wonderful human being. Uh, number six, this versus that again. Seminal American jazz flutist Herbie Mann versus sentient anthropomorphic Volkswagen Beetle Herbie the Love Bug. Obviously, Herbie Mann. <laughs> <laughs> See, honestly, I'm going to go with Herbie the Love Bug myself. I, I, it's those movies don't hold up, but I loved them when I was a kid. Yeah, they don't hold up. They're not. They're not no. great. No, they no. really aren't. But I, I adored them when I was small. Yeah. Well, I had my, you know, one of my first albums was Herbie Mann when I was a kid. Hmm. So, and that was a big deal to buy an LP then. And my second LP was. Oscar Peterson, Ray Brown, and Ed Thingped, uh, We Get Requests. Oh, that's great, yeah. And I bought it with my babysitting money. <laughs> I just learned, um, I just learned, because I've always heard it, I'm like, I should learn this, it's really easy. I just learned uh, You Look Good to Me the other day. Yep. Just, uh, I'm gonna start, I've been doing we it at a bunch it. of my gigs. Yeah. It's great. It's such, a, it's such a simple little tune, but there it's great. There was something that happened to me when we were playing that at Birdland. Hmm. Um, oh, with, in with New Ray. York. Yeah, You Look Good to Me. Hmm. And... Because I, it had been in my childhood. I got that album when I was 11, and mm. I had been just started babysitting, and I went mm. down, and I remember having enough money to buy the LP. And then you're gonna, you played the And I the played basis. every single cut with him wow. over and over. I think I wore it out, actually. Wow. That's, that's wonderful. And then you got to do, actually work, then, with, work then with Ray. And playing that cut with him at Birdland in New York City was like the highlight of my life. It comes I mean. full circle. Oh, that's amazing. Um, this is a bit goofy, but number seven, and this is a free form, just associate with what you want. But being from San Diego, I have to ask Ron Burgundy's flute playing. <laughs> a pock on you. Uh, it's <laughs> if I had a dollar for everybody who came up to me and said, well, gee, there's no flame coming out of your I flute. Know. I would be a wealthy woman retired in Cabo. I know. I do it think that would be a great Halloween costume, though. You know, to have the fire. <sighs> Actually, I thought the funniest <laughs> thing about that scene was just—it's right at the beginning where he's standing up and he's going, "Oh, I'm not really prepared," and he pulls the flute out of his cuff like it's a James Bond gadget. <laughs> <laughs> There's something I—I I still think it's hilarious. It's—it's it's a terrible, you know, it's become a bad pun, but or a bad, you know, reference. But. Yeah, but. I looked up the flute player who actually did that today because I was curious. His name is, who who performed like for the soundtrack, Catisse Buckingham. Have you ever heard of no. him? No, I've never heard of him. But you guys don't know Catisse? Yeah, you know him. He's a, he plays around L.A. a lot. He's a good saxophone player too. Okay, yeah, yeah. He does a lot of work in L.A. Um, younger guy, yeah. That was his. He sounds like Brecker on on sax. Wow, and then he plays flute. But he did uh, all the he did the tracks for he did the you know the, isn't it interesting but he can play how, changes and stuff yeah he plays isn't it interesting how some saxophone players burn on their saxophones and then they pick up their flute and all of a sudden it gets fluffy I know I I believe you you've like mentored some 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 like great saxophonists who want to double on flute I think you 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 gave some lessons to James Moody yes yeah. uh-huh. I, he gave some lessons to me on different things. I worked with him on his tone. He worked with me on his patterns. Oh, wow. That's terrific. Yeah. So it was a wonderful association. Yeah. 
kind of trying to tone up people's uh yeah tone his tone got better with just uh he just had to lift his elbow a little bit and get get centered he was he was know. just playing it like at a kind of a slant yeah at the at a slant yeah hmm. so so he wasn't his tone wasn't centered and he desperately wanted to get a better tone so it didn't take much to fix that for him hmm. wow i never got to work with moody much but what i've read and heard about him from interviews is he even in you know, later in his career, he's always practicing and always trying to pick up new stuff from other players. And yes, know. and he would he would call me and say, "Holly, listen to this." You know, I'd be in the <laughs> middle of dinner, and he'd just lay the phone down. You know, not knowing if I was available or not, he'd lay the phone down and start playing the new pattern that he just created. Wow, huh? As <laughs> he was, uh... he was excited about it right up to the end. I know, and he he was he was a he was a great he's great to watch too. One of the one of the times I saw yeah. him, he legit did a rap, and then he ended the <laughs> yep. rap by mm-hmm. spinning around three hundred sixty degrees. You know, like total showman. Yep. yep, it was it was. Yeah, I he, was blown away by he that. He was a wild hair. That he he was so he wasn't just he was you know he was a very serious musician, but he also like he had a sense of humor and he knew how to put on the show too. It was yep. It was lucky I got to got mm-hmm. to see him. And just as a footnote for those who are listening who don't know, Moody, um, for the later part of his life, lived in San Diego, I think in Santee, right? Or um, right around that area. Right around uh, the lake out there. Um, yeah. It wasn't Santee, but yeah, hmm. clo- close. Uh, so I think we have time to hear one more tune, but maybe we'll chat about it for a second because actually I haven't heard this CD yet. It's your one of your discs called Minor Miracle and this has one of my favorite rhythm sections. Um, yeah. I, I guess it's a Kenny Barron rhythm section. Peter Washington on bass and Victor Lewis on drums. Got wash. Yeah. So, and this also features Mike Wofford on piano. Yes. Um, so wh- when did you record this record? Um, boy. Um, I can tell you according to Spotify. <laughs> I have it okay. right here. <laughs> 2009, I think, maybe. I have 2004 on oh, here. Oh, okay. But, but no, maybe, nope. maybe I'm wrong. It's 2009 and uh, 2003. Okay. Oh. No, no, no. It's 2003. Sorry. Okay. So, oh, it came out in 2004, yeah. I think. Oh. <laughs> 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 if, you, if you could see me, I'm looking at the CD jacket right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but tell us a little bit about this tune, the title tune, Minor Miracle. Um, it was something that uh, I was feeling like I had combined a bunch of styles in one tune and it was kind of a disjointed tune but it it swung and it felt felt good and it was kind of funky and I s- said to my husband Mike Wofford uh I I don't know this this is some kind of a miracle that we even made a tune out of this hmm. and then he said oh that'd be a good tune for an album minor miracle brilliant yeah and it's the title track too yep. yeah <laughs> No. And and you'd gotten a chance before, and I think done some touring with Victor Lewis and and uh, Kenny Peter Washington. Yes, in the past, yeah. Uh-huh. There, yeah. I talk about a rhythm section. Yeah, that that trio, and then you know um, when I was at the Village Vanguard as a leader, which was like another big highlight. That Victor Lewis, Kenny Barron, and Ray Brown were with me. And Victor Lewis is another one of those drummers, as we talked about earlier, that can light it up. No matter what groove it is, just he's got uh, he plays he plays cymbals and drums in different ways than all other drummers I've heard. He actually plays sticks sometimes vertically. 
between symbols. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, what a sound, yeah. Uh, well, we're, we're going to get in this, into this tune, but Holly, uh, thank you so much for coming yeah. down to do this interview. This it's has been, been great. So fun. And there's so many more stories. We're going to have to have you back <laughs> yeah. you know, sometime. Well, thanks for having me. This is a great idea, you guys. And, and uh, I'm going to tell everybody about it. Well, we're, we're, we're trying to, uh, you've certainly invested a lot in the, in the San Diego jazz scene. And uh, we're trying to do, do something like the same. Good.
listening to the San Diego Sessions podcast brought to you by Dirty Boulevard Recording Company. Please subscribe now on iTunes or listen online at dirtyboulevardrecording.com. Theme music composed by Ed Kornhauser, performed by Ed with Grant Fisher guitar, Harley Magzino bass, Ian Tordella saxophone, and Charles Weller on drums. If you'd like to be a guest on San Diego Sessions, please contact us. All musical selections are used by permission of the artist. San Diego Sessions is engineered and produced by Ian Tordella at Dirty Boulevard Recording Company.